And thanks to Cry Malt, local malt for local beer, this is Radio Brews News. My name is Matt Kirkegaard, founder of Australian News, Australian Brews News, and ever, um, uh, Pete Mitchum, welcome back. Yeah, g'day, Matt. G'day, listeners. Yeah, I can't help you. <laughs> Matt, You're on your that's own, okay. Mate. It's one of those things that I was actually thinking about it then, and the problem is it's like tying your shoelaces. When you think about it, you forget how to do it. Exactly. How's your week been, Prof? Yeah, not too bad. Yeah, gearing up. Obviously, this week, the judging for the 25th annual Australian International Beer Awards begins. Even though the awards actually began back in 1987, but more as just a uh, an Australian beer and brewing awards sort of thing. And then 1993 became the Australian International Beer Awards, and the year later moved to its current home of the Royal Melbourne Showgrounds. So a lot of judges will be turning up in country as we speak. There's a bit of a a get-together tonight and a a judges briefing at its stomping ground. And then we get into it tomorrow, 2,000 beers, the highest number of entries in the history of the AIBA. So our work is ahead of us. But of course, next week isn't just about the Australian International Beer Awards. We've got a 10-day Good Beer Week program that includes uh, the great Australasian Beer Spectacular, or GABS, that, uh, well, you're heavily involved in that as well, Prof. It's your week of weeks. Yeah, it's a very exciting time. I kind of feel a little bit of the excitement and the trepidation that I guess, you know, like farmers, you know, when you're coming into harvest and that sort of thing, and you know, your, your busiest weeks ahead of you, but it's kind of the culmination of all your hard work. And it's a bit of a celebration as well. And it, it just sort of, yeah, it makes the year worthwhile. Yeah, we've also getting together and having the next time we're recording will be at the Cryer Malt Trade Hub with our Brews News Q&A, three great discussion panels. And while we're there, listeners, we've got five tickets to give away if you want to shoot an email to producer at brewsnews.com.au. If you're going to be in Melbourne next week and you'd like to come along to the best conversation of Good Beer Week, come along. We've got Ken Grossman. We've got the uh, head of the Barrel Aging Program at Goose Island. We've got Peter Fielding. We've got the head of Sustainability at Qantas. We've just got experts coming out of our... Uh... Zara Pryor from, um, from Stone and Wood talking about sustainability. And uh, she's actually talking about employment and training, well, particularly from Stone and Wood's point of view skills. with their traineeship program. You know, uh, they're looking at growing brewers. They've got a high requirement for brewers and they're looking at their training program. So that's one of the panels we're looking at. We're looking at the... Yeah, and we probably should point out, Matt, for our listeners, 10 bucks get you in, get you beers and access to the three seminars, but you don't have to stay for all three. Each one's 40 minutes to an hour or so with a bit of Q&A at the end of each. So if there's one particular one that interests you, pop in and then uh, have a beer with us. Nick off, go and do something else. Or you can stay for the others. And it includes beers. So we've got some beers from Goose Island. Uh, so you'll be able to try the locally produced version of the Goose Island. We've got some Sierra Nevada beers that you'll be able to try. And great conversations. And you'll get to rub shoulders with the panellists as well. So shoot an email and we'll give away five double passes to listeners this week. Prof, that's our week ahead. What about the week that's been news? Anything grab your attention this week? I've noted a couple of things we might want to talk about. Yeah, no surprise that I think the big issue at the moment seems to be, because it's so prevalent and there seems to be a new story popping up every week of mergers, acquisitions and, you know, big beer sort of, I guess, treading on the toes of the little guys. And particularly, I guess, you know, the other part of the story is some of the little guys starting to get a bit bigger, but still not sort of in the same league as as the big beers. Yeah, and one of the stories I'd flag to talk about, it's Jim Cook from Sam Adams, Boston Brewing Company. Boston Beer Boston, Company. Uh, yeah. Beer Company seems to regularly come out these days complaining that he can't get a tap, and then now he's called on the uh, US Department of Justice to crack down on craft brew takeovers by beer giants. And, you know, Prof, it's one of those things that, you know, separate to the issue of takeovers and independence and all of those sorts of things, I can't help but think that Boston Beer Company is in that netherworld itself at the moment. You know, it's been a, a business that has has contract brewed a lot of its beer. It's brewed in multiple locations. It's, you know, despite being called Boston Beer Company, it's brewed right across the US. Even in Australia, it's being distributed here by Coca-Cola Amadil. So they don't seem to have 
too many problems with big monoliths distributing their beer separate to anything else he just doesn't seem to be the face that he once was for talking about small independent brewers yeah although the thing that I think really stands out for me about the way Boston goes about their business is, and I guess in my years as a steward volunteering with the AIBAs, noting just how much beer of a really good, consistent quality, just in terms of the awards and the medals that it continually picks up. But the fact that there are so many seasonals, there are specialty beers, there are, you know, interesting ingredient beers, there's, you know, tips of the hat to uh, traditional styles and that sort of thing that the Boston Beer Company still does, which I guess kind of in my mind says to me, they're not trying to go for the commodity beer kind of thing. They're not trying to produce factory beer, but they are obviously being very clever in the way that they are conducting their brewing processes in multiple locations, their logistics and that sort of thing, which eh, I think that netherworld for me is kind of, they're a big brewery, but they still think small but they act big kind of thing. Yeah, and that's where, you know, it does my head in. And a lot of the stuff that we talk about here, it's, it's essentially me thinking out loud because there are so many sides, you know, it's, it's almost a tetrahedron, this whole thing, because it's never about beer quality. And breweries like Goose Island or, you know, we've seen Lagunitas fully taken over by Heineken this weekend. It's never about beer quality, but it's about some of the other things that come in. And Sam Adams, you know, really was a flagship beer. It was a beer that sort of introduced a lot of people to the new wave of brewing. But I just get the feeling that Boston Beer Company isn't necessarily the standard bearer anymore for talking about how awful the big guys are. And I guess that was more the point I was making rather than anything about their beer itself. Yeah. And I look, I wonder whether, you know, particularly millennials now who are getting into the whole craft beer thing and following in the footsteps of the, I guess, the, the foodies who wanted to move away from mass produced, they wanted to move away from homogenized, they wanted to move away from generic to seek flavor. I guess maybe one of Jim's concerns is that those guys will go out and see what they think is a and i'll look, look i'll use the example of because i encountered it personally uh, when i was in the states it was the ab imbev shop top which is their great big slab of orange in a wit style beer and so knowing what the beer was i sort of asked servers at the airport and at a little diner oh you know tell me a bit about the beer oh well it's quite dark you know it's it's a craft beer it's not to everyone's taste it's quite flavorful and, and that sort of thing and they were kind of give, giving the impression that yeah it was a little brewery kind of beer rather than it's part of AB InBev. So I think we need to be aware that new people coming into the scene can't tell the difference between that and Goose Island and a Boston Beer Company beer and uh, Deschutes or uh, whoever it might be. That's where it always comes back to, you know, transparency is very important. And that's one of the cages that I still rattle, you know, the breweries need to be transparent. And, you know, if it's got line on the back or if it's got CUV on the back, people can at least make an informed choice. And if it matters to them, who makes their beer? And, and ultimately, I think, you know, there is a case to be argued. And there is a case that the CBIA and various beer enthusiasts and beer lobbyists can push the importance of independence in craft beer because we really do want a broad and diverse craft beer industry because we've seen what happens when it does come down to two or three. I think uh, Jamie Cook from Stonewood describes it as match racing where everybody does the same thing, you know, and just hoping to uh, do the same thing better yep. as opposed to the very diverse craft beer scene that we've got but there are so many different markets within the beer market that some people just want the 45 dollar carton and uh yeah very very interesting times ahead and we are going to see more and on the same note i posted something on facebook from draft mag titled working for a brewery that sold out 
And there was a particularly interesting quote that I found in it that seems to have generated a whole lot of really interesting discussion on Facebook. So you can become part of the conversation on Facebook, listeners. And the quote was from somebody who works for, it was an anonymous person, but somebody who works for a craft brewery that's been taken over by one of the big breweries. And it said, here's the thing I learned from AB. They spend a ton of money on research and focus groups. And the biggest thing they've learned is that the vocal people, the people who are very active and complain the most, really represent the smallest amount of beer that's purchased. You're talking two or three percent, yet these people are the most vocal. So whenever there is a takeover of AB, you get a very, very loud cheer squad. I'm not drinking their beer anymore. Yep. They've sold out. And ultimately, what I drew from that is that the big breweries have come to realise that it doesn't matter, that they can take over these companies. There's a storm, there's a lot of vocal criticism, but ultimately... It's not going to make a pinch of poops difference to your bottom line at the end of the day. It's the, you know, what Brendan Varis refers to as the telephone booth gang. Exactly. And that's where, to me, it's very important that people who love craft beer exercise a choice because so long as the broadest part of the market doesn't care, it doesn't matter what the rest of us say, it's just going to roll on as it has been. So Yeah, and look, Matt, at the end of the day too you know when money talks bullshit walks and every brewer out there would love to have a cheaper way or a more efficient way of getting their beer from their brewery into the drinkers hands and the reality is that one of those ways is to link up with the big guys little creatures learned that early on stone and wood had that for a little while the, the ease of getting their beer out into the market rather than having to do it through a third party or do it all by yourself is to have a partnership with a company that has those logistics pieces already in place and as we've said probably ad infinitum on this podcast you know every time you buy a beer you are casting a vote for where you see the beer industry in five years time and if you buy solely on price you know if you buy on quality and independence then you are doing your bit to make sure that there is a quality independent beer market but that said prof you know it is becoming more and more convoluted you know like sam adams is one example but we're seeing goose island which has been bought out by ab inbev that is now being brewed in cascade in hobart again making a nice beer but when you've got a brand that is so closely aligned to chicago not only is it owned by a big multinational brewery but it's also being brewed in multiple locations around the world i can't help but feel quite apart from the quality of the beer but you're moving away from what that brand once represented but even there it's not unique to big multinational breweries brooklyn brewing company is being brewed by coopers these days so they're brewing their flagship lager at coopers these days and you know they're still i think they've got 25 percent investment from somebody but substantially they are regarded as independent and you start thinking well you've got brooklyn beer which has a very strong brand being made in adelaide by Coopers, surely that's further along the spectrum than the small independent craft brewery. Yeah, for sure. And look, at the end of the day, I think it comes down to, you know, beer for me, whilst it is the international, I guess, you know, drink of the masses, for me, the local side of things is more important. So if I walked into a pub and I saw Goose Island next to, let's say, Fixation, I'm going Fixation because it's local, I know it. The other brand doesn't sing to me in terms of that. But if I'm over in New York, I want to drink Brooklyn. Do you know what I mean? I think that's the way... I look at it, not so much what's available, but what else is available. Or, you know, why wouldn't I support this small one that's actually local? Bit of a hobby horse at the moment. But I just think, you know, work on your local area, get yourself a little brew pub and make beer just in your own patch. And if other people want it, that'll grow organically. But don't sort of try to create a brand and then say, now we need to sell this all around the country. I think we sort of, you know, just need to think a bit smaller for sustainability. Yeah, and mate, I, I agree. And uh, particularly, you know, I, I found myself thinking more and more, you know, whereas wine bottles travel, I think beer drinkers need to travel to get that sense of where the beer comes from because beer doesn't travel well. So if you want to try it, go to the place that it's made. And, you know, maybe you miss out on a few great beers because you can't travel everywhere you want to, but go drink the local beer. Exactly.
and you're probably the same, but some of my fondest memories of drinking a beer have not been particularly remarkable, interesting, unique, you know, specialty beers. It's been drinking a beer in the brewery with either the brewer or the guy who's leading the tour or whatever it might be and getting the, the story firsthand and here and try a bit of this. And so for me, that, that's as much of the enjoyment as collecting, you know, ticking boxes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mate, uh, just moving on. Probably not something, well, do we want to discuss it, Prof? Uh, James Atkinson wrote a great piece on critics' verdict on the haze craze, you know, the uh, New England IPA, hazy beers in particular. Do you have any strong views about them? New England IPA. Yeah, was lucky enough a couple of weeks ago to be drinking with Dave Padden from Akasha, and he talked a lot about this, which really resonated with me, is that, and for those who don't know, this is the whole, we're going to try to get pump heaps of hop character, but late in the process so that we're not getting the bitterness. It's it's just all about the, you know, the beautiful, punchy, tropical juice kind of character. If you brew the beer really well to the, I guess, you know, the way the style demands, you'll end up with a beer that has a bit of a haze in it. But now we're going, well, okay, well, let's just have about in the same way that certain beers have added BioCloud to make it look like it's an unfiltered beer that's actually been filtered but doesn't look filtered, adding haze by using flour or, you know, other methods. To me, that's just, you know, you're lying to yourself. And again, how do you differ from any of the tricks that big brewers play? It sounds like I've had an almost exact conversation with Ian Watson, who's been at Murray's and Fortitude, said the same thing. You know, the cloudiness was a side effect of getting the flavour that you wanted into the beer. But as happens in anything that there's a thing or a hype, people start then wanting a cloudier beer. And uh, so it's got nothing to do with the... it's got nothing to do with the beer. It's nothing to do with the flavour. It's got everything to do with the appearance and having a beer that ticks someone's idea of a, a great beer. And often that counts against the flavour of the beer. And I'd tell you, you know, maybe it's my age or, or whatever, and I've got nothing against cloudy beers. But you know, some of the photos that you're seeing on Instagram um, where people are celebrating it, they look to me like a mango daiquiri or something. It just looks completely unappetising, quite visually displeasing as a beer. Mm. And look, the only, I guess, hidden advantage is that it's getting people to pour their beer out of the, the vessel into a glass to see how hazy it is. So I guess that's one thing. Then again, I, I love it when you see people sort of showcasing their haze and what they're really showcasing is how they uh, don't clean their glasses very well because it's got a, a sheen of bubbles on the inside of the glass. It, yeah, yeah. So, um, and just one other thing before we get on to our, our guest today. Prof, I, I had a chat last week with Matt Moran. Oh, there you go. Yeah, I was, I was doing some proper journalism for a major daily paper, and so use that to talk about the James Bogues Epicurean range, and I, I got a couple of bottles sent to me, Prof, so I did get to try it, and uh, I, I had a chat to Matt, and he sort of went through pretty much quoting what he'd said in every other interview I'd read about the James Bogues Epicurean, uh, reading off the script, and I just sort of said, oh, mate, you may not remember, but, you know, about seven years ago I interviewed you, and... Uh, let's say you were a little bit dismissive about beer and he had a bit of a chuckle and you know, he was pretty good about it. And uh, he did make the point, well, you know, if you go back 15 years, you know, everyone's fridge had iceberg lettuce in it. Uh, now we've got three or four different types. And uh, so, yeah, he, he did acknowledge that maybe he's had a bit of a you know, change of heart about it. But he, at the same time, he did say that, you know, he's still not that big a, a beer drinker and he, he does like the red that they've put together. And having tried both of them, the James Bogue White is a, look, it's a very nice floral got a nice hop character to it but it's a it's a lager there is absolutely nothing inordinately culinary about it then there hasn't been a so no, nothing nothing white or wit nothing white or wit about it it or, is or vice. literally just trying to say well white for fish red for meat which 
on, on one hand, love the fact that you know Lion are trying to do something positive in the beer and food space, and it's probably not for people who are well meshed in craft beer, and it's for the rest of the people. But again, I still think that just getting the celebrity chef trying to use his star power, do nothing particularly interesting with the beer, and just try and flog you know a slightly different, but you know put a you know white wall tires on your HQ Holden if that makes sense you know you're not actually changing what it is paint your own racing stripes go yeah go down the deal the dealership and get an aftermarket wank pack and you know bolt on a spoiler and put some side pinstriping yeah 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 and you're not fundamentally doing anything different still holding commodore yep so anyway um but yeah so it was, it was interesting but uh no it, look it all took it in uh, in good faith and uh you know he, he did make some good points and uh, the beers themselves beautiful beers very nice beers they're not going to change any uh you know craft they're beer not set any, set any new not, trends. Not setting any new trends but look if if it does create some awareness about uh, craft beer or about beer and food i guess the category wins yeah. so uh prof now today we're speaking to somebody on your suggestion so do you want to uh tell us who we're speaking to yeah, today we're lucky enough to be speaking to Paul and Natasha Holgate, who are going to give us 20 minutes out of their very, very busy schedule, because at the moment they're not only expanding the brewery, but also moving into a bit of education through their old alma mater, the University of Melbourne. And you can tell, by the way, I don't know if it's the same up in Brisbane, but if you didn't go there, you call it Melbourne Uni. If you went there, you call it the University of Melbourne. Okay. Apparently that's a thing. <laughs> I'll note that, Prof. Well, let's uh, get Paul on. And it's a pleasure to welcome to Radio Brews News, Paul Holgate from Holgate Brewhouse. Welcome, Paul. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks, uh, thanks, Prof. Thanks, uh, Matt. Yeah, cheers. Mate, it might be a good place to start because uh, Holgate's been around, uh, well, pretty much as long as I've been in into this whole thing called craft beer. Uh, but for those perhaps a, a little bit newer to it, tell us a little bit about Paul Holgate and Holgate Brewhouse. Sure, no problems. Yeah, look, we, um, I'm the owner and founder of uh, Holgate Brewhouse with my wife, Tash. We started about 18 years ago in 99. Um, in 97, we had a bit of an inspiration to start a brewery after we were, we were on a holiday in the States and um, came across the small, tiny uh, brew pubs and stuff over there that really inspired us to get cracking. Um, I was a passionate home brewer. I studied science at Melbourne Uni back in the day. And um, as a teenager, I used to make uh, breads and jams and um, ginger beer and that type of thing. And I love cooking. So that sort of let, led me into um, into beer making and, and passed through through my science. So I was a passionate home brewer. Um, and we ended up um, start, starting the business sort of, I suppose, a bit bit, bit before the curve of the current wave of, um, of craft breweries back in the day. We've got a, um, a hotel and pub cellar door as part of our offering. So we, we're running a tourism and um, hospitality bar um, business as well as um, our, our uh, pub brewery and, and, and a new production brewery that we're installing at the moment as well. Yeah, and going back to those early days, you were probably well ahead of the curve in terms of uh, the whole brew pub sort of thing because I think it's, it's over 100 years old now, but the Keatings Hotel was where you sort of moved into from from brewing in the shed out the back as many craft brewers did back in the day, you know, Dave and Knighton and Ben Krause among them. That's right, yeah. Yeah, and so it's, it was good to sort of have a home, but you were very much, I guess, that the, the brew pub model in that, you know, here we are, here's the pub, and if you look through that window there, that's where the beer's made. Yeah, for sure, and I think... Um, 
I think that's, uh, you know, in the early days when we first started, it was different, different environment than now. In those days, there really was really hard traction to get people interested in um, craft beer or alternative beer or small independent beer, whatever you, you want to call it. Um, you know, there was still still very much, um, uh, you know, oh, people just wanted to drink the mainstream. So a way of establishing yourself and getting getting sales was to have your own your own outlet. And we operated for three years without our own outlet before we before we took over this hotel to become the home of Holgate. And, yeah, it was pretty, pretty tough days. There wasn't a big market for, for craft beer in those days. Uh, at the same time, there were, there were very few players. Turn full circle now, the industry is booming globally, which is fantastic. Um, there are a lot more players, though, so it's a very, very competitive marketplace out there. Great, great for yep. the consumers. Yeah, and it certainly says something about the business model that you guys have adopted, that not only have you been able to stay relevant, but you've been able to sort of, I guess, position yourselves as not an elder statesman, but certainly there's a lot of respect for Holgate as the brand. And that's, I guess, manifest in the fact that you've just gone to the bank and, and got an overdraft to um, to build the production brewery. Tell us a little bit about what that means for you. Yeah, look, we're very, um, I suppose, proud, I suppose, part, part of a measure of success um, in this industry is actually staying in business and being around for quite a while. So we are... We are very, very proud of that. We employ a lot of people here now. We have probably 24 full-time employees. We've got, um, you know, a pretty big um, salary bill between the, both the um, hotel business and our brewery business. So that is um, a measure of success, and we're proud of that. So, you know, we we have been able to, yeah, as you say, go and um, raise funds to go to the next step of our our business plan. When we took over this hotel in 2002. One of the main things that we liked about this site was the fact there's a big plot of land adjacent to it, which was part of the hotel traditionally. Um, it had a liquor license on there, and we sort of earmarked that for for future expansion. So this hotel, being an historic hotel close to the train line in in Wood End, and a beautiful hotel, was just a great spot to um to to put our brewery into it. But the land at the back was where we sort of was the was the jewel in the crown. We said, well, one day when we need to expand we can do that and I suppose that was 15 years ago and finally doing it so yeah we've been able to raise some funding and we're putting in um, a nice big space to expand a big new packaging line and cellar Um, and we've also been successful in getting a tourism grant from the state government of Victoria the help of regional development Victoria and Bendigo which has been awesome so that's going to help put a facility on the front to, to, to showcase a new brew house and a visitor centre which will be all about education and educating the general consumers about Beer and brewing, raw materials, history of beer and brewing, and a bit of a bit of a tourism experience adjacent to our um, our production brewery. Aside from that, Paul, how important is it that all the beer that carries the Holgate label is brewed in Woodend? Look, I think it is part of our DNA, and I I reckon it's really important, and it's it's I suppose a strength of ours and also a weakness. I mean, we could have gone and got our beer contracted and grown much bigger earlier on. Uh, I suppose going out and contracting your beer also comes with a, a heavy duty cash flow that you have to raise as well. So it's sort of um, six, one, half hours and the other. But we're, we've always found, I mean, I we started the business um, for the love of brewing and for the love of being creative and actually making something, creating something. So for us, in our DNA, is actually that we actually make it ourselves. And for better or worse, that's the path we applied. Um, we toyed with the idea of putting a production brewery on existing um, industrial state somewhere, just sort of thinking thinking about what what, what are options a few years ago. But we always came back to let's develop this site and let's make this site maximise um, the production potential of this site and have have everything on the uh, under the one roof. And I suppose going to um, looking at 
a lot of breweries throughout the states. You see, even the likes of big guys like Stone, when they put their, their new development over there a few years ago, again, they've got their retail, their cellar door, their, their main hospitality place right next to their main, main production facility. And, um, and I think that's a really nice way to do it. Paul, just going back to the government grant that you got, I guess that's one of the things that we have started to see, quite apart from you blaze a trail with consumers, there's been a real change in the drinking habits, but we've also seen government start to recognise the contribution that small brewers are making, and with the number of small brewers that are around, it is becoming a little bit easier for them to interface with government and get the sorts of grants that you've got. How hard has it been to reach that stage? I know that you guys have been very vocal uh, in, in, in Victoria, um, but you know, what were the steps that you had to do to try and get government to uh, take what you were doing seriously? Look, it is. It hasn't been easy, and I've I've been applying for a grant for many many years. It's been based, I suppose, time consuming and taking away from the running running of the business. And you know, it is I suppose an element of luck. The, all these grants are competitive grants, so it's not like you know the tourism money is earmarked for Woodend or earmarked for Central Victoria. It could go anywhere throughout the state to any different type of tourism uh, venture. And the, and the state government's been fantastic in um, in funding not just uh, brewery tourism ventures, but a whole range of different tourism uh, businesses throughout the state, which, which was great. And then, as you say, it's fantastic that they've um, recognised the, um, the value of craft breweries, regional craft breweries, and how these craft breweries do bring people into regions. And from there, um, you know, the tourism numbers, you know, spread and, and visit to, to other businesses in that, in that location or indeed in other adjacent areas. So it's all about bringing visitors out of the big cities and into the regions and, I suppose that the local government units of, of the state government, like Regional Development Victoria, they play a key part in that because they actually work closely with and get to know local businesses um, in, in a way that down in the city they can't. And so they're instrumental in bringing to the attention to the state government the value of, of craft beer and how it's so popular, people you know coming up in droves um, to visit these sort of places. Paul, we might now look to the, the future, and Matt and I have been speaking quite a bit uh, leading into Good Beer Week, where we have in the, the Cryer Malt Brewers Lounge a Brews News Q&A, and one of the big things is sort of sustainability and the future and, and the challenges and that sort of thing. And one of the, the key points at the moment is skills. And as we were literally talking about it, I got an email through from my brother-in-law who works at the University of Melbourne, who came across a, an article that uh, you and Natasha have a bit of an involvement with at the University of Melbourne, which is, I guess, an adjunct to the, I think it's the Vet and Ag Sciences Faculty, where students who need to do something a little bit different to the course that they're studying will get a bit of a sniff of beer. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, that's right. So the, um, the Vet and Ag Science Department have put together this breadth subject. One of the senior guys there, um, uh, Charles, has uh, a bit of a background in, um, in brewing himself and home brewing from, from the UK and was keen to deliver this type of course. And one of the people in the department lives locally up near us and, um, and said, look, you know, if we, if we want to get involvement from a craft brewery that could help out with some of the course content, could help promote the course and so on, and let's, let's go and talk to Holgate. And as we started discussing with them and they contacted us, they soon got to realise there's a bit of a connection because both Tash and I studied science and chemistry at, at Melbourne Uni ourselves. So there was this um, nice little bond, I suppose, sort of come full circle. 
So we, we said we would be wrapped to help out. And I suppose part of our, our involvement is to helping, I suppose helping uh, young people coming through to really understand what craft beer is and what's the difference between, you know, uh, traditional brewing and, and mainstream brewing and where the, you know, it's quality over quantity and it's all about the flavours and all about the different styles of beer. So if we can help educate, you know, young people coming through in their education, not just about brewing, but the course you know, thing in the, in the first part delivers information and training on sensory uh, analysis. And I think that's, you know, the first basis and even more important than teaching people about brewing because it's teaching the average consumer that beer is a, you know, it's a fine product made from great primary agricultural products and something to be savoured and enjoyed. And if we can educate them that way, that's a really good thing to do for the industry. Yeah, and I, I get the feeling that one of the unexpected consequences of something like this, given that it's not a core, you know, a brewing course, but it's people who are doing vet and ag sciences can get a bit of an experience of something different. And it may actually lead them to say, okay, well, maybe when I get my chemistry degree or whatever it might be that I'm studying, I might actually look at working and, and not necessarily in the brewing side of things, but perhaps in, in the lab side or in, the, you know, beer ambassador marketing. sort of thing or marketing, yeah, yeah all, all sorts of things like that. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 while the course is being delivered by um, the vet and ag science department, it's not only for students enrolled in those courses. So whilst I'm not an expert on on the Melbourne model, my understanding is that these breadth subjects like this uh, beer and brewing course are available to all students across all, all, all faculties to do. And they were inundated with people from all different departments. I think they ended up having to turn people away, signing up for the course, which was um which was fantastic. <laughs> exactly. that's, that's one exactly course where you'd, you'd certainly look forward to the homework wouldn't you absolutely and um you know it's it's sort of i was really keen to be to be involved as i said um the reasons earlier on but also a bit of full circle for us and my one of my first uh beer epiphanies i suppose was at uni um and the uni pubs trialing uh coopers off tap at the at the clyde hotel in carlton which is our, our local for the chemistry school and was it was all the arts into Arts and commerce used to go the other side um, to Norton's, didn't they? To Norton's, that's right. That's right. A lot of the science engineers used to go to the to the Clyde and on that side, um, and they had coopers on tap there. And um, you know, I was a, a mainstream beer drinker, as most people are when they first uh, start drinking, particularly um, people of uh, our vintage. And um, yeah, got the taste for coopers, and that sort of led me into into home brewing as well. So yeah, I sort of um, feel a bit of a, a kinship down there with uh, Melbourne Uni. <laughs> there's, there's probably no surprises in that knowing uni students <laughs> i have to go to the pub and do some study yeah and, and paul is there uh, an opportunity at some point down the track for a bit of um let's say hands-on or you know so will students be able to perhaps jump on a bus and, and come up to holgate and see the process or be involved in the in the process at all yeah, there is for sure. Um, and while we're not actually delivering the course, I can't say exactly what they have in mind. My understanding is that up at Dookie, they have a campus for the Ag and Vet Science, and I think they're going to. I think they have some small pilot sort of system up there. Is my understanding. But we certainly offer it on the table from us that if um, if the students want to come up and do um, do a tour um, and or um, a, a brew day and things like that, then we're certainly open for that. And we're finding, you know, just in general anyway, the more people we can bring up through our venue and through the brewery, particularly we've got the new production brewery out there with a high-speed German pack line and all that sort of thing, it's the more interested they are, the more they can see and we can explain the differences between mainstream beer and, and, um, and small independent beer and hopefully people will keep wanting to purchase craft beer. I used to cut classes to go to the rec club. This might be one course that might get people cutting the rec club to go to the course. Paul, 
one of the things that uh, I mean, you guys have been around uh, since the late 90s, so you've seen the flourishing of the craft brewing industry. You've, you've seen it really start to flower now. But as you mentioned, that uh, there's a lot of competition. What do you see as the great challenges that we're facing um, in the brewing industry right at the moment? Well, I suppose that's sort of uh, one of them for sure. There's a lot of brands now out there um, and a lot of choice, which is great for the public. I suppose in some ways it potentially can get too many brands where people can be overreached. There's a lot of big money coming in into craft beer, which in some ways perhaps is a is a step away from what the essence of, of the original sort of concept was, which was small, independent, local. So both here in the States or, or globally, there's a lot of a lot of big, big, big money coming in and big marketing budget. So success of particular businesses or brands uh, often comes down to the amount of marketing punch they have behind it rather than the uh, quality uh, and flavour of, of the beer and so on. So, you know, and I suppose Australia has always been a difficult market being a very a large country uh, geographically with a relatively small population, so it's quite a fragmented market. So that's always been a bit of an issue for the market down here. As well as there, you know, we do get a lot of the big, big players coming in um, from overseas, big, big craft beer players. And I suppose the small independent brewers in Australia often get compared to some of the, the very larger ones in terms of cost and pricing and things like that and people think that we're all the same size and from the marketing perspective it's hard to differentiate on the, on the shelf who's who and what's what and it can get lost in the mix sometimes that some of the you know quite small independent ones can't compete on um, on pricing or cost but they get compared often in that way. So there's a lot in what you just said, Paul. We've seen uh, the you know, people have been starting to move away from this idea of craft beer and the focus has been on something like independence. But even independence is a little bit of a vexed... Uh, you know, it's very hard to define what independent means. Obviously, you guys own your brewery, but there are a lot of breweries that have a lot of money behind them that may not be the founder's money. Is that a challenge that you guys have to... Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's, look, it's a it's a very complex area. You know, as you say, what does independent mean? Uh, you know, if it means independent of uh, multinational breweries or stock exchange listed listed breweries, but it could be that still opens a door for a very large brewery to be created from you know a large company, a multinational that might be in the fast moving consumer goods area, but not into beer. And they get into beer, but they've still got massive amount of dollars and marketing clout uh, behind them. So I suppose it is it is as you say a vexed question, complex complex area. And I think one of the reasons why a lot of people buy craft beer is they are wanting to support small businesses and they often are buying anti-multinational and they want their their hard-earned dollar when they buy a craft beer to go into a small independent businesses that that is supporting a lot of jobs and so on. And so often it's hard for them to to make that choice or, or they don't know who's who because they are, you know, wanting to buy, as I said before, from genuine small businesses that are, um, that are like when we, we first started, one of the things that inspired us and we were in the States and we just, in 97, we just stumbled across a few small breweries, but they were obviously small without much money, just, you know, ordinary folks having a go. And that's what really inspired us to, to sort of start. And that was a sort of us for us was the essence of, uh, it wasn't even called craft beer back then in Australia. We used to start just micro beer and so on. So it has changed a bit. And I think it comes down to the consumers. There is this school of thought that, um, you know, consumers just want to buy good beer and good flavour and doesn't matter what, what the origin of the ownership. But I, I don't subscribe to that. I don't think that's quite true. I think there are a lot of consumers who, when they're buying craft beer, if they knew who owned who, they would choose to buy from a small independent player rather than one um, backed by a huge multinational because they're wanting their hard-earned dollar to support these type of businesses. 
How hard is it for you to tell that story that you are a small local independent business you know, with so many competing products on the shelf? Very hard, very hard. That's not easy. The easiest part of this business, in a way, is actually making the beer. You know, the um, uh, the differentiation and the marketing and the selling side. Um, you know, that's that is a real challenge and real difficult, and it's even more difficult now than when when we first started. And um, you know, it's um, it, it, it is a challenge to grow um, because small businesses like us. You know, we've managed to um, to attract some funding um, for plant equipment, and so we can grow our capacity. But that doesn't give us any extra oomph in uh, marketing dollars and dollars to spend on, on distribution and promotions and advertising and so on. Going back to 1999, if, if 1999 Paul could speak to uh, 2017, Paul, what would you say? Yeah, I don't know. It's been a long road. You know, I think there'd be a lot of things that we'd do differently. But, you know, again, a lot of the things that we'd like to have done differently would cost money and we've never had that backing uh, as I said, we, we've been lucky enough to be able to raise some money as, as we've grown through debt finance. But that's all that all goes into infrastructure, and it's hard to you can't raise debt finance to hire salespeople or to put into marketing. So yeah, maybe uh, current Paul Holgate would advise um, old Paul Holgate to somehow raise some money for for, for marketing or um, or invest in a um, distribution company or something or other, because that's the whole key to business success. If you could go back, quite apart from what advice would you give yourself, is there anything that you wouldn't have done? Is there anything that you would have maybe chosen not to do? Oh, look, I'm sure there are. It's probably hard to um, raise a few of those off the top of my head. You know, I suppose one of the things that most small breweries necessarily do because it's the easiest, cheapest way to do it is bottle conditioning. And often it's those same small breweries, and we were the same that shouldn't be doing that because actually that's a very difficult thing to get right. Um, you need to actually be pretty high tech to get that right in terms of measuring, you know, sugar content and and um, and and mixing homogeneously and um, measuring carbon dioxide content and so on. And often it is the startups that don't have that sort of technology. So. In hindsight, you know, you probably would have started um, with the ability to, to package without bottle conditioning. That's just one example. But then you have to go and buy a bottling machine. They're very expensive and we really couldn't afford one uh, until a few years after we started. Problem is, I suppose, again, our original business model was to supply 80% of our products in draft to local pubs. But back in 99, local pubs didn't want craft beer, just wanted mainstream beer. So, you know, it's a catch-22. It you know, would have been hard to do a lot differently, probably. That's obviously been a big change. You know, when you were trying to sell beer 10, 15 years ago, contracts, every venue in Melbourne would have had contracts. We've seen them lessening a little bit and bars willing to take on craft beer. But then there seems to have been a move to the other way where they don't want to have a constant range. They want to constantly turn over craft beer. Is that a, an issue for you, not being able to secure a tap but in a very uh, you know high turnover business? Yeah, I think both of those issues are still there. There is still a lot of contracts around. There's still a lot of venues um, selling taps and so on again. So it comes down to who's got the deepest pockets. And certainly the rotating tap nature of craft beer venues is an issue for, for brewers. It's not an issue for consumers because um, they get to taste lots of different stuff all, all the time. But to create um, you know, an ongoing stable business, obviously small breweries need uh, dedicated tap points to have regular sales. When uh, your brands are constantly being pulled off and rotated around, that's difficult. So that certainly is definitely an issue and I'm not sure what the solution for the brewer side is anyway. I suppose we safeguarded ourselves in some respects by having our own venue, by having a brew pub, by creating tourism business and that just didn't happen overnight. We've had to work long and hard to get our hotel, bar, restaurant into being a local icon and in developing a strong tourism business um, over the years. That has helped us. But that doesn't help you grow because in a big way, in terms of your beer volume, 
because um, you can't sell with those sort of volumes for a production brewery through your own bar. But that in itself is an interesting idea worth exploring is that when you set up, you didn't set up in Richmond or you know parts of Melbourne. You've been a regional brewery uh, for the whole time. So was that an added challenge? You didn't just have to build a brewery, but you were building a brewery in a regional area where you had to uh, attract people, not just to your product, but to the space. Oh, ab- ab- absolutely it was. Absolutely it was. And uh, we were... We started not long after, but around the same time, looking back, say Mountain Goat, for example, um, and they had a massively different different uh, growth curve from us being in a city um, and all that goes along along with that. Uh, and I suppose it comes back to, again, the, the, the nature and the philosophy of our business where we're a family business, we've grown organically. If we'd have chosen you know, the ideal spot to start a craft brewery and we scoured Victoria or scoured Australia for the right spot and the right marketing mix and the right demographics, you know, we wouldn't have chosen here, but we chose here because this area is where I grew up and this is where we lived and this is where we were raising our family. So we started the business here for all, all those reasons, not because we thought it was going to be a crappy hotspot. So, you know, we, we decided to start the business because we're passionate about brewing. We wanted to start a business. We thought we could make a go of it or we thought we'd try to make a go of it and just see where it led us. That was the thinking. So we just started up and just kept on rolling. But it definitely was a challenge in regional Victoria for sure. All right, Paul, well, we better let you get back to uh, supervising the construction of the, the new wing of, of the Holgate Empire. Thanks very much for joining us on Radio Brews News. It's been an absolute pleasure, gents, and thanks very much for having me on. Hopefully we'll get to see you for a beer next week during Good Beer Week. No doubt. See you soon. Brews News is made possible by Brewpack, Australia's number one craft contract brewer. With over 100 craft beers and ciders on the roster and counting, Brewpack specialises in offering growing craft breweries a home for their packaged and kegged beer, no matter how crafty. Serious about handmade beers, and with an open-door policy, Brewpack's brewers love having passionate, hands-on partners in the brewery. Thinking about craft contract brewing? Think Brewpack. And uh, yes, we thank Brewpack for not only making a whole lot of great craft beers possible, but also for making this podcast possible. Ah, there you go, Prof. That was Paul Holgate. Nicely done. Yeah, and it's a nice kind of, you know, full circle kind of story for for Paul, because he and his wife, his now wife Natasha, met in the uh, the chemistry library at the University of Melbourne, and then their daughter is now studying arts there. So, and then you've got the guy who's running the course, who's a home brewer as well, and then the connection to to Wood End has brought it all together. And look, it'll be terrific if down the track it means that we're getting people interested in the beer business rather than just being a brewer, but bringing those, um, I guess, the science skills that it seems we don't lack for enthusiasm in this country. We don't lack for people who really want to get in and and be a brewer who have interesting ideas for beer. But I think what we lack overall is that depth of scientific knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. Although it's, you know, it's one of those things. It sounds like Paul had that interest. You know, we're seeing a lot of brewers starting today with the same interest that Paul had. You know, he talked about making ginger beer and jams and cheeses himself. We're seeing a lot of people, it's part of that maker's thing that's starting breweries now. I I just think it's a much harder industry to, to try and do that in. They grew organically. They had to make their market, but at the same time, they had plenty of time to, I guess, fail little. These days, it's much harder to set up. You've got to pretty much run from the start. Yeah, exactly. And the, look, the fact that, that Holgate are, are flourishing and, and expanding in a market that has seen so many more new players and new drinkers, it's a credit to the way that they've stuck at it. And uh, well done to them and, and good luck to them for the future. 
So, yeah, great chat. Really good. I don't think we've ever spoken to Paul on the show uh, in 124-odd episodes. No, I don't think we have. So, oh, good, good one. Now, Prof, that's really it for the show. No cards and letters this week. Listeners, if you do have any uh, feedback about the show, if you've got anything that you want to share, any comments you want to make, you can do that by emailing producer at bruisenews.com.au. Uh, you can call and leave a message on 0730401508. You can leave a review and you can help us out by leaving a review on iTunes or your other podcasting platform and help other people find us. If you really like what we do, you can help us out by becoming an executive producer for $10 a month, two cups of coffee a month, a producer for one cup of coffee a month, $5, or you can just make a donation. And that helps us do things like fly to Melbourne for a good beer week and record the best conversations of the week. Prof, apart from that, I don't think there's much else that we can say. Thank you, uh, listeners, for joining us. Thank you, Prof, for, uh, for joining me. Look forward to having a beer with you next week. Yeah, it'll be good. Yeah, good. And actually, Prof, I, uh, uh, something I did flag with you is that we've had an email from Charlie Bamforth recently, who's over here for the Australian Craft uh, Australian Craft Beer Industry Association conference uh, in July, and he's uh, tacking on a little bit of a, a tour afterwards. So he's going to be up in Brisbane, and uh, we're hoping that we can do a podcast in the pub. So that'll be another chance for us, hopefully, to get together and have a beer and uh, have a beer with Charlie. Yeah, no, excellent. So I, I, I get the feeling he enjoys his chats with us, Prof. So, Prof, I'll let you go and look forward to catching up with you in Melbourne next week. See you next Wednesday. See you next week, guys. Have a good beer week. And we're out.